and Amina Blackaside to a clinician and hear them shudder with fear. Fear of nephrotoxicity, fears of ototoxicity, fears of getting the dosing right. They are, however, potent bactericidal agents which are very useful in the right patient for the right indication and if used appropriately. Marie Curie, who discovered the radioactive substance radium and polonium, is remembered for saying, nothing in life is to be feared. It is only to be understood. So rather than fearing aminoglycosides, let's try to understand them better. This is Microbe Mail, and I'm your host, Vindana Chibabai. Today, my guest is Dr. Veshni Pillay Fuentes Lorente. Veshni is a medically trained doctor with a Master's of Medicine in Clinical Pharmacology, and she's a specialist clinical pharmacologist. She's based at the Tigerberg Hospital and Stellenbosch University in Cape Town. Veshni, it's great to have you on the show. Thanks so much for joining me today on Microbe Mail. Thanks, Madonna. It is indeed a great pleasure to be here. So our quick reminders include, remember to sign up to the newsletter on the MicroMail website, follow MicroMail on social media, and remember to share MicroMail with friends, coworkers, and colleagues. And all of the links that we talk about are available in the episode show notes. Vashni, can we go ahead and reduce some of the listeners' aminoglycoside angst? Absolutely. Okay, so maybe we should start talking about aminoglycosides as a class. So what are they? which are common examples of them, and what exactly do they cover in terms of pathogens? Aminoglycosides are a class of antibiotics that exhibit bactericidal activity. There are a few common examples, and those include gentamicin, amikacin, tobramycin, streptomycin, and neomycin. And they exert their mechanism of action by inhibiting protein synthesis in susceptible bacteria by binding to the 30S ribosomal subunits. Aminoglycosides are effective against majority of the gram-negative bacilli, including those that may be multidrug resistant. And these are bacteria such as Pseudomonas, E. coli, Proteus, Klebsiella, Enterobacter, Serratia, and even Acetinetobacter. So that's a fairly comprehensive list, but one that's, I think, short enough for most people to remember. And then the next thing we need to ask about is what is special to know about the pharmacokinetics and the pharmacodynamics of aminoglycosides, particularly from a physician's perspective? That's a great question to ask. Antibiotics have related pharmacokinetic and pharmacodynamic parameters which are associated with their efficacy. And there are three main types of PKPD parameters of efficacy. The first one is time greater than MIC. And by MIC, I'm referring to the minimum inhibitory concentration. And then you have Cmax or peak concentrations over MIC. And lastly, the area under the curve over the MIC. When we look at aminoglycosides, their PKPD parameter of efficacy is Cmax or peak concentrations over MIC. What this means is that the dose administered should be large enough to ensure that the Cmax or peak is above the minimum inhibitory concentration. In most cases, the Cmax should be around eight to 10 times above the minimum inhibitory concentration. In addition, 
aminoglycosides have a post-antibiotic effect. This means that when the concentration drops below the Cmax, aminoglycosides will continue to exhibit or exert its effect against the bacteria. Now, having understood the PKPD parameters of efficacy and that aminoglycosides exhibit a post-antibiotic effect, we can now appreciate why a daily dose can be used when administering aminoglycosides. Thanks, Vishni. And I suppose that also explains why you can have such a high dose if you need to reach eight to 10 times above the MRC, not so. Absolutely. Okay, so then which infectious syndromes are aminoglycosides typically used to treat? So, you know, from empiric therapy as well as targeted therapy. So aminoglycosides are often combined with beta-lactam antibiotics, and this is used to employ a synergistic effect. We particularly see this in the treatment of Enterococcus faecalis and Enterococcus faecium. Mm-hmm. Also, prolonged use in infective endocarditis is common, and this is particularly if streptococcal infections with moderate to high resistance or even enterococcal infections are suspected. It also constitutes a part of the empiric regimens in infective endocarditis in patients with both native or prosthetic valves. Additionally, it can be used in the treatment of urological infections such as pyelonephritis or uncomplicated community-acquired cystitis and even in zoonotic infections. In many infections, it can be considered as alternate therapy, particularly in patients with penicillin allergies. And one such example is pelvic inflammatory disease. So when unsure about prescribing aminoglycosides in certain infections, it's always good to consult with an infectious disease specialist or a microbiologist. Mm, That's a very helpful pointer there. So what are the problems associated with using aminoglycosides that I think, as we mentioned in the introduction, makes everybody so edgy about using them? I like the word edgy because that's exactly how we all feel, right? And we were all there at one point. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. So aminoglycosides um, are associated with adverse effects related to nephrotoxicity and neurotoxicity. And when we say neurotoxicity, this often encompasses autotoxicity, which has been Mm -hmm. commonly reported in literature, as well as respiratory muscle paralysis. Around these toxicities, particularly nephrotoxicity and neurotoxicity, and that including autotoxicity and respiratory muscle paralysis, are black box warnings in in the aminoglycoside labels. So some may refer to it as black box warnings, some may refer to it as just boxed warnings. Mm -hmm. Um, And this is generally what brings about the edginess we're talking about amongst clinicians with its use. However, If we remember the risk factors that could increase the incidence of these adverse effects, and if we monitor these drugs appropriately, we can actually limit the occurrence of these adverse effects. Okay. So the risk of nephrotoxicity is greater in patients with impaired renal function and in those who receive higher doses or prolonged dosage um, or prolonged therapy, rather, of aminoglycosides. So so that could be one of the risk factors that you could look out for. Mm 
When it comes to neurotoxicity, we usually see that neurotoxicity is manifested by autotoxicity, both vestibular and auditory, and it mm-hmm. can occur in patients treated with gentamicin, which is the drug that actually is being commonly reported in terms of autotoxicity, probably because it was more frequently used previously. And primarily in those with pre-existing renal damage and in patients with normal renal function treated with higher doses and or for longer periods than recommended. And aminoglycoside-induced autotoxicity itself is usually irreversible. So it's Mm. important to identify these risk factors and then closely monitor these drugs. And there are other manifestations of neurotoxicity, and this may include either a numbness or a skin tingling, maybe a bit of muscle twitching, and even convulsions in severe cases. What would also be good would be to have the renal and the eighth cranial nerve function closely monitored, especially in patients with known or suspected reduced renal function at the onset of therapy, and also in those whose renal function is initially normal, but who develop signs of renal dysfunction during therapy. These are all very important points, especially. I mean, if I just think back to my own clinical days and also just chatting to clinicians on a day-to-day basis, people think of the nephrotoxicity. And when you talk about the neurotoxicity, it's only ototoxicity, which is generally considered. But as you've mentioned, there's so many other forms of neurotoxicity that need to be considered when patients are given aminoglycosides. So that was quite helpful and useful. So can you talk us through you know, what the whole point of this episode is supposed to be about, and that is how to be using an aminoglycoside appropriately. And, you know, and kind of the background to that would be what you've already done in, in terms of explaining the pharmacodynamic targets that we need to aim for. And also, you know, considering that we're in a low and middle income setting and that we're in a resource constraint setting, what's the best way to monitor patients who are on aminoglycosides? Firstly, like any other antibiotic, we should prescribe these drugs with caution, always considering whether we're administering the right drug at the right dose for the right infection. That's the old crux of AMS, right, of antimicrobial stewardship. And aminoglycosides, like we've just stated, can be nephrotoxic. Therefore, it is important to monitor these drugs through the therapeutic drug monitoring. And when we say therapeutic drug monitoring, we're basically just referring to you're giving a patient a drug and you know that this drug is toxic and it's needed in this patient. So you basically want to monitor just the plasma concentrations to make sure that it's within acceptable ranges. So not too low that it's suboptimal and not too high that it would predispose to toxicity. And when we talk about aminoglycosides, monitoring can be done in two ways. So we could either do a peak concentration or a trough concentration. And at this point, we may ask, what is a peak and what is a trough Mm. concentration? Yeah. So when considering the PKPD parameters of efficacy for aminoglycosides, you want to ensure that peak concentrations are adequate. So when attempting to conduct a peak concentration, we basically would take a blood sample 30 minutes 
after end of a 30-minute infusion or one hour after the start of an infusion. And this is extremely important to understand because if we do not take the concentration at the correct time, we may have an incorrect result. Mm. And then what about the trough concentrations? When are trough concentrations going to be taken? And so a trough concentration basically is taken just before the next dose. Okay. So, I mean, what often happens is people will say, I'm taking an aminoglycoside level. And, you know, I mean, I'm sure you've seen it in your setting, but in our setting as well. Often it's not recorded which one was collected. And so when you're trying to then interpret the result thereafter, you're not really sure what you're interpreting because it hasn't been documented in the file whether it was a peak or a trough. And so obviously the next important question to be asking is when do you take a peak and when do you take a, a trough concentration? Yeah, and, and that's an extremely important question to ask because sometimes we just go with the notion of we're giving a drug, we know it has to be monitored, let's just do a concentration, let's mm. see the result without giving it a bit of a thought. And generally in our setting, the milligram per kilogram dose administered to patients is sufficient to ensure an appropriate peak or Cmax over MIC. So in these instances, we would only advise a peak concentration when a patient has higher MICs reported, or mm -hmm. if the patient is critically ill and is not responding to therapy. It is always advisable to know the common aminoglycoside MICs within your hospital settings as well. So you could relate these concentrations to the MICs you would generally get or what is being reported. And in this instance, you know, by not taking a peak for every single patient, you also limiting the cost factor because we're in a low to middle income country setting. So that is something we're always bearing in mind. Uh, with mm. any medical intervention, and, and that applies to monitoring as well. In terms of trough concentrations, they are done to ensure that the aminoglycoside is totally eliminated before administering the next dose. This is to reduce the incidence of nephrotoxicity. So remember, going back to the PKPD parameter efficacy, the concentration mm -hmm. is on um, achieving a high enough initial peak concentration, and then you want the drug to be completely eliminated before you enter the next dose. Okay. And most literature have reported trough concentrations of greater than five milligrams per milliliter that can predispose a patient to nephrotoxicity. And a trough concentration should be done at least twice in the week during the aminoglycoside treatment course. This can be done more frequently if you suspect a change in renal function or a patient has renal impairment or you cannot avoid the aminoglycoside. Okay, that was all very, very helpful. So now we know exactly what to do when. And also, I mean, there's a lot more talk about MICs in general. Um, clinicians need to know to ask about the MIC values for particular isolates, or just as you said, in general, what is the general average MICs for particular pathogens in your setting? So then how long can and should aminoglycosides be used for and I'm thinking of you know the old school days of saying oh you must give it for three days for empiric therapy 
Can we go down to a single dose in certain settings for certain clinical indications? And does it need to be longer for others? So like all antibiotics, aminoglycosides should be used for the least possible number of days or until the patient is clinically improving and antibiotics can be de-escalated. In a simple case or, uh, for example, urinary tract infection, a single dose can be administered. Um, mm -hmm. In some instances, such as infective endocarditis or bloodstream infections sensitive to aminoglycosides, longer courses of aminoglycosides are warranted. Um, okay. And the duration of these agents can be anything from three to five days or even beyond. And the duration of these therapy should always be discussed with the antimicrobial stewardship teams within respective settings. Okay. Okay, and we're going to come back to the MIC again. So when you're actually choosing to use the aminoglycoside, we've already alluded to having some idea of what the MICs are, but does it matter to look at the MIC when choosing to use it? Yes, absolutely, it matters. Aminoglycosides should be dosed appropriately to ensure that the Cmax is 8 to 10 times above the MIC. And this is due to the whole Cmax over MIC being the PKPD parameter of efficacy for aminoglycosides. For this reason, it is important to know the MICs within your hospital setting. And this information should be attainable through discussions with the microbiologists. Okay. And then when is an aminoglycoside then not a good option? If we're thinking of appropriate use, we have to also consider when it's not a good idea. Yes. So cases where you should try and avoid aminoglycosides include patients with renal impairment or neurological conditions such as myasthenia gravis, for instance. Aminoglycosides also have a poor penetration into lung tissue and CSF. However, it is still used in management of infections associated with these tissues. In some cases, aminoglycosides may not be a good option, but it could very well be the only option. And in mm. these instances, always measure risk-benefit profile like we would for any other drug. Yeah, absolutely. And that kind of brings me to my next question in, in terms of, you know, it being the only option, even if it's not a good option. You know, we, we're in this era of multidrug resistant organisms. So we do need to consider how and when we can consider using aminoglycosides, particularly in the perspective of being able to save the broader spectrum agents or reduce the amount of these broader spectrum agents that are used? Yes, absolutely, Vin. And, and this is the question that everyone asks when we talk antibiotics these days. How can we save the broad spectrum agents? Mm. And this is where the role of the antimicrobial stewardship teams are extremely essential. Aminoglycosides are prescribing should always follow the indications as per local formularies. For mm. example, in South Africa, we have the essential medicines list and the standard treatment guidelines. And these are basically committees with experts in various fields who review the latest evidence for efficacy and safety of medications. And they come together and there's recommendations that's been put in a South African context. Mm -hmm. And beyond these indications, prescribing of aminoglycosides should always be discussed with the multidisciplinary team. And 
this I'm referring to the AMS teams. Um, mm -hmm. And these include discussions over what is the acceptable dose and even duration of therapy. Absolutely. Um, and perhaps in, in for listeners listening outside of South Africa, there might be something similar in your own setting. You know, we ideally try and look at your standard treatment guidelines or something similar to the essential medicines list. And then, basically, we always try and include issues related to gender and age, specifically on microbe male, just to make sure that particularly the very young and the very old are not left out of the discussion. So is there anything specific related to aminoglycosides that you think we need to consider for children, the elderly, or any particular genders? This is a great question, and this is often overlooked, but the special populations are so complex and, and there's so much to talk about around special populations. And, and I'm going to try and keep it very basic to uh, the special populations we kind of deal with more commonly and the issues we would deal with or be faced with more commonly. Mm -hmm. So special populations are important to consider when dealing with any medication. Mm -hmm. But relating this now specifically to aminoglycosides, there are certain physiological changes that can affect drug disposition. Um, let's start with the elderly. So as an individual gets older, um, renal function, for instance, decreases, and this can affect renally cleared drugs. Aminoglycosides are renally cleared. Hence, they could have drug accumulation and develop aminoglycoside-associated nephrotoxicity. Mm. So now let's use a different physiological change and let's relate this to pediatrics. In neonates, for instance, we expect the water content of the body to be higher. And we know that aminoglycosides are generally a hydrophilic drug. And that basically means that they will disperse into extracellular fluid as well and at normal doses the Cmax over MIC may not be adequately reached. In this mm -hmm. instance, you would want to do that peak concentration to understand what are the peak concentrations you're getting and is this enough in terms of the MIC you have. Right. So when it comes to special populations, dose adjustments may be necessary. It's always good to discuss such cases with a clinical pharmacologist and in instances where this is not possible, ensure that adequate drug monitoring and multidisciplinary discussions um, with an AMS team is done on an individual case-by-case -case basis. Hmm. So that's very helpful. But I think one of the biggest missing pieces to the puzzle in South Africa, and I'm not sure whether other low and middle income countries are very similar or not, but that's we don't have a lot of clinical pharmacologists. And so I think perhaps the role of the microbiologist, the role of the infectious diseases physician often has to kind of fill in that gap. But where possible, I agree with you, getting, getting um, input from your clinical pharmacologist is extremely important. So Veshmi, it is time for our spotlight feature. And today we've got another mini microbe message from another clever little person that I've been able to access. <laughs> so take a listen to this message for you. Great. Hi, I'm Druti. I gave the first mini micro message in episode three 
of Michael Mail. Remember me? One of the biggest challenges my generation faces is climate change. What does climate change have to do with microbes, you ask? Well, as the earth starts getting warmer, the earth's glaciers have started melting. Huge amounts of bacteria could be released in the oceans as the glaciers melt. That means that harmful bacteria might be among the thousands of microbes that could leak into rivers and lakes. Let's all do our bit to fight climate change. Wow, that's so adorable and so true. I think we should all do our best to fight climate change. Wonderful. So can you summarize, Veshni, for our listeners how they should be prescribing aminoglycosides actually and appropriately? Sure. So in summary, aminoglycosides' efficacy is related to Cmax over MIC. Know the MIC ranges within your hospital and ensure the doses used are adequate to ensure that you reach that Cmax over MIC ratio of 8 to 10. Trough mm-hmm. concentrations are important to limit the incidence of nephrotoxicity, and peak concentrations are recommended if you have a patient with higher MICs, and by that I mean mm-hmm. moderate to high resistance. And then a once daily dosing regimen is generally sufficient and is less likely to predispose a patient to nephrotoxicity. Okay, great. So, Veshni, thank you so much for joining me on Microbe Mail. This was really lots of fun, and I'm glad we managed to cover the most important things we needed to about aminoglycosides, and I hope you'll be able to join me again sometime soon in the future. Thank you. This was fun indeed. Thank you for having me. I hope the listeners are now less edgy when prescribing aminoglycosides. <laughs> I hope so too. So listeners, we'd love any feedback you have by email or even on social media. Remember to share this episode with anyone who might benefit from the content. And until next time, that's it from me, Then your microbe messenger. See you again soon with more Contagious Mail. Yeah, yeah.